Hello and welcome to episode 129 of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac with Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week in the uh, weird world of Twitter, Elon Musk announces that he has secured financing in his acquisition bid, securing $46.5 billion, including $25.5 billion in debt financing from Morgan Stanley and, and other firms as he continues to explore a tender offer for the company. Elon Musk's grand vision for Twitter is taking it private in order to protect what he views as the public square. The the irony there, of course, that he wants to uh, take the company private in order to protect the public discourse. I think what we're seeing from Elon here is consistent with his company investment strategy or his uh, his entrepreneur strategy. In the early days of Tesla, uh, for example, he was, at least publicly, he would make statements that it was less important that Tesla succeed versus the idea that he make enough, uh, he create enough disruption in the market so that electric cars, the, uh, you know, the pursuit of electric cars was proven to be viable. Uh, and of course, along the way, of course, it took uh, several years and it's an ongoing story, but Tesla has become uh, successful. And there's a strong argument when you look at Twitter versus some of its, um, its competitors, uh, Facebook and Google, that, uh, that that Twitter has not uh, certainly you know reached the uh, the market cap uh, the value of uh, of those companies in the marketplace. Uh, the question becomes: A, isn't it more conducive to uh, having transparency to have this as a as a public company uh, versus a a company where? Musk can pretty much ride roughshod and, uh, and, and make whatever policies he wants. Uh, some of those I probably wouldn't complain too much about, like, uh, or ma- many Twitter users uh, would welcome, such as the, uh, the creation of an edit button uh, or perhaps expanding uh, even beyond the 256 uh, character limit. But the other question becomes, you know, if he's going to open source all these protocols and we could have a long discussion around his assertion of whether Twitter is actually the default public town square just because it's his preferred uh, megaphone in, into the into the universe. But um, uh, but but even if he were to significantly loosen the rules around moderation and banning is he is twitter really in a position to affect those changes because we've seen what happens before when unmoderated communities uh, run up against the policies of the real gatekeepers which are uh, the apple app store google play and even a fair number of web infrastructure providers uh, you know we saw what happened with parlor uh, in in the wake of uh, the uh, January sixth uh, attacks at, at the Capitol, uh, and so the question becomes: How would what uh, you know? How, how is Musk's vision for Twitter different than what uh, what, what Parler has in mind? Uh, other than you know, conceivably, uh, Trump would would probably come back. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's probably something that that, that camp would, would welcome, given 
that uh, Trump hasn't uh, been too active on his own social network. I think you raise a lot of really interesting points, Ross. First, Musk seems to be committed to this idea of removing content moderation, and in some ways that improves public discourse. I think one could easily argue that that wouldn't help public discourse. We'd probably have a lot more uh, yelling at each other in the public domain. You have to wonder if some of these other gatekeepers are hoping that this bid is not successful because it will put more pressure on companies like Apple to decide at one at some point do they have to ban the entire platform because it violates their views and, and standards. So uh, we could be leading to a uh, to a confrontation here in the years ahead if Twitter were to to spin in a certain direction. You have to wonder if Musk were to take this private if we don't see others try to create uh, and replicate what Twitter is today. Uh, certainly the edit button is long overdue. We have it in other social media platforms. It is not a hard thing it's, to do. It's not. It's not rocket science. No, Facebook. Sure. It, it, Facebook. You know, Meta has figured that out and has implemented that for a long time ago. And you just show the, the change log, and so exactly. uh, so Twitter could do that. There's long been rumored that they will do it as part of their blue paid subscription service, and probably lots of people would pay to have access, if nothing more, to that. I was a big user of, of Nuzzle and liked that platform that was acquired by Twitter and promptly shut it shut down with the presumption that it would end up as part of the uh, the Twitter blue service. It has yet to really uh, come come to fruition there. But um, and I completely agree with your assessment of. Elon Musk's global strategy of world domination has nothing to do with <laughs> finance. It has nothing to do with building a successful company. It has nothing to do with becoming rich. He he wants to be a disruptor and you know he wants to do that in lots of ways. So you you have certain tech billionaires who are committed to giving away all of their money, the, the Bill Gates and Mel, and Melinda Gates of the world who are seeking to give their fortune away and make the world a better place. Elon wants to spend his billions in being disruptive. And and some of that is exploring space. And some of that is creating public uh, discourse and and other things like that. So I think this will not be the last we hear from Musk. I'm not convinced he actually wants to run Twitter or even wants to own Twitter, but he does want to be disruptive and and wants to put it in play. And he certainly has been successful with that. And Sean, you you raise an excellent point with the question of who would run Twitter, uh, because, of course, Musk has more than his hands full uh, between uh, SpaceX, Tesla and the Boring Company. Uh, in fact, even when he had been offered a board seat, there was a question of whether he even had the time commitment for that. Uh, and uh, I think there was another board that he recently stepped down from. So so I think it's almost certain that he would not be uh, CEO of Twitter, which raises the question, who would be? Um, so uh, so we'll, we'll have to just continue to see how, how this unfolds. And uh, it would certainly be good to get more details on what exactly his plans would be uh, other than this broader notion of 
fewer restrictions, uh, because that is not necessarily a positive thing. No, and I think his desire to make the algorithms transparent is also seems to be much more difficult than many people presume. Uh, experts have clearly come out and said, this is not an easy switch to flip. It's, it's a little more complex than that. And it ultimately relies on a tremendous amount of data. And so if you really wanted to understand how the algorithm is surfacing content, you have to understand the underlying data uh, beneath it. And that's where you get into problematic territory. The, the other thing is that even if you were to turn Twitter into, say, a B corporation, right, where there's this part of the bylaws that say Twitter is here not just to maximize profit, uh, but also to serve the public good, that doesn't necessarily mean, contrary to Musk's assumption, that the let, let's say he can even affect this uh, broader level of discourse without it turning into bedlam, uh, the, the you know online bedlam. That still really doesn't do much to ease the issues of misinformation and manipulation, which has really been far more prevalent on other social networks, uh, YouTube and. Uh, and Facebook, um, you know, that was one of the great learnings from the 2016 uh, election was that a lot of the disinformation campaigns that took place didn't, and even 2020 uh, was uh, was that the 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 battle for for voter sentiment does not happen on Twitter, at least not in terms of where national elections are in play. It takes place to a large extent on Facebook, and I think to some extent on YouTube as well. Uh, but you know, if, if, if he has any concerns about kind of the political slant uh, of any of this, it's, it's not going to make much of a difference with the exception that Trump personally was, was of course very active on Twitter and presumably his account would be reinstated uh, were, were Musk to uh, assume control. Well, and a group of 18 House Republicans did ask Twitter's board to preserve all records related to Musk's bid. Mm -hmm. So uh, should the Republicans regain control of the House, there might be an investigation into why this bid wasn't successful and did Twitter go out of its way to, to block it. So there is this- Of course uh, it's going out of its way to block it. <laughs> yeah, but was it politically- That's, that's my mystery. Oh, I see. Was it politically motivated is the view from Washington. So I see. All right. Certainly more to come in the uh, in this week in Elon Musk. So join us next week <laughs> to uh, get the update. Musk, Musk's fancy. Yeah. Uh, in other news this week, we had a number of streaming service announcements as the world of streaming matures, arguably. And with that comes both challenges and opportunities. And I think we're going to see some really interesting things in this space over the next year as these platforms mature and as wallets shrink uh, not only driven by inflation, but also less government stimulus and and people just having less money to spend on on streaming services. Well, and and increased competition. And increased competition. That's <clears throat> right. So uh, Netflix announced their Q1 results. Good news. They added almost 1.1 million subscribers in Asia Pacific, uh, driven primarily by the success of their South Korean series Squid Game. But overall, they lost 200,000 subscribers during the quarter. The, the stock was uh, hit hard 
on this news. Uh, they came out in their investor letter and credited that loss to all kinds of factors. The war in Ukraine, uh, they estimate that over 100 million households are sharing their login. So they, they are going to continue to work to clamp down on that and try to motivate those 100 million households to subscribe. They they believe about 30 million of those are in US and Canada in violation of their rules. So they'll be working hard uh, for that. They also came out and, and uh, you know, looking forward, uh, see less growth um, in, in some of their things. I mean, they had estimated a net addition of 2.5 million subscribers. Instead, they lost 200,000. And, and they uh, broadly talked about how their strategy is going to change moving forward. Yeah, they, uh, I, I believe they made uh, changes to their guidance that uh, they weren't really confident uh, forecasting for the next quarter at this point. But this is something, it, it seems to me to be a natural result of factors that we've been talking about on the podcast for a long time, particularly the rapid ascent of uh, Disney Plus. And we're also seeing a lot of uh, giveaways for Peacock and, and the premium version of Peacock and Paramount Plus uh, on, on a year's subscription. And I wouldn't say that that would necessarily lead to people canceling their their Netflix account, but certainly the the novelty, you know, we're, we're well into a new phase of streaming where the novelty of, of the choice and quality original programming that Netflix provided uh, now has significantly more competition, uh, some real big guns in terms of uh, content libraries at HBO Max, which uh, also uh, prior to the sale to Discovery Networks, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute, <clears throat> had added uh, a significant number of, uh, of new subscribers. Disney Plus, of course, has uh, been uh, just just on an incredible run in, uh, in adding subscribers. So uh, consumers ha have to make some choices uh, at some point. And so uh, we're seeing one of the courses that Netflix is taking in addition to clamping down and, and trying to get tighter about uh, controlling the, the revenue is on the cost side, uh, looking to reduce expenses, not pursue so much of a scattershot approach when it comes to content development, uh, but rather to invest in fewer but high quality programs. You, know, you mentioned uh, Squid Game. It's been, it's been something of a portfolio approach, but I think in some ways this gets us uh, also let's you know, not forget Apple TV uh, winning the Oscar with, with Coda and uh, uh, a number of other uh, really you know, good quality series that they're, they're starting to churn out. Uh, like uh, like Severance, one of one of my favorites, uh, and so uh, this um, this I think kind of takes them back to their earlier days of content development, where they made fewer bets, but really focused on the uh, you know best uh, best possible content. But even if they do that, their costs are going to be much higher uh, than they were back in the day, just because of uh, competition from from Prime, from Apple TV Plus, et cetera. And the, the law of large numbers. They have a lot of subscribers. Absolutely. Uh, they, their growth is definitely going to be in international markets. Uh, and I, I did like this part from their investor letter for this quarter. 
um, they they noted that much of their growth moving forward would come outside the U.S. And they say, quote, traditionally U.S. entertainment companies have viewed international as an export market for U.S. content. But we saw long ago that great stories can be made anywhere and loved everywhere. So they're really focusing on that. Uh, in fact, three out of their last six the most popular TV series seasons were all non-English, including Squid Games, which I already mentioned. So you, you see that potential cater to local markets, develop and produce in local markets with presumably a lower cost of content acquisition, and then deploy it everywhere. And you might be surprised. Squid Games, obviously very popular in South Korea and helped drove subscribers in Asia, but also popular in North America. Sure. And, and so... That could be a very interesting strategy for them. Uh, we're watching more content as they touted in their in their investor letter. The share of total U.S. TV time has increased today. About twenty eight point six percent of our time spent on TV is spent streaming. Netflix has a larger share of that over time as well. But you see growth in a number of of areas. Disney Plus. Um, you know, definitely you mentioned Apple growing there. And and, and uh, so there's a lot happening. It is definitely the, the best of times, the worst of times to be a streaming platform. And nowhere is that more apparent than with CNN Plus. Now, if you blinked, you <laughs> probably missed CNN Plus. CNN in Plus was a video streaming service. And I say was a video streaming service. It launched on March 29th of this year, and it was an offshoot of the CNN platform. It had been announced uh, last summer, and they really built up a, a, a large number of individuals that were going to come and and Chris Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace was one of the was one of the definitely one of the big names, and uh, their plan was to to launch and then grow to several million subscribers in the coming years. Uh, they uh, did see more than 100,000 subscribers join in the first week, but the sense is that it really wasn't showing great uptick from from there. Uh, the the initial investment, and CNN had originally estimated that they would invest over a billion dollars in its first four years, uh, looked like they were just hemorrhaging funds. And so they decided after just two weeks of launch, that they would uh, cut their uh, CNN Plus subscription and, and shut it down. You know, I, I think this is uh, raises some interesting questions about the nature of what makes for a successful streaming service. Uh, and uh, I, I think I see some interesting contrast between CNN Plus and, for example, ESPN Plus. Uh, so ESPN Plus, I think somewhat like CNN Plus, was really focused on these these special features. It, it really wasn't about the content per se, but it was around about context and other you know meta content around the content. Uh, and the difference was that ESPN Plus, a lot of the programming featured on it were these uh, kind of documentaries, right? Like uh, like the Last Dance. Uh, it was one about you know the '86 Mets uh, that uh, that I'd seen a, a little bit of, uh, and so this I think plays well into the core of the sports fan. Uh, maybe part of the issue with uh, CNN Plus was that just 
too too crowded of, of a news uh, landscape, uh, particularly given that a lot of the uh, the appetite uh, for additional news commentary uh, has traditionally come more from the right side of the spectrum uh, than uh, than the left. Uh, you know, thinking back. Uh, to a lot of the, uh, you know, so what we see today uh, on the cable networks, as well as some of the things we've seen on uh, on talk radio in the past. Uh, and I would also speculate that perhaps Discovery Networks really wants to put more muscle and attention uh, behind HBO Max, which we mentioned before, and uh, may have uh, its hands full in terms of integrating uh, Discovery content uh, with the uh, Warner Media uh, content, and that's really going to be its uh, the main thrust uh, of its efforts over the next few years. And it may have come down to really uh, opportunity cost, you know, just uh, uh, putting putting more of their effort behind this this entertainment initiative that has seen success uh, versus something more speculative like CNN Plus, where there really hasn't been. Uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of precedent uh, in, in in terms of launching uh, a streaming service like that. Well, and if you can't launch a streaming news service in the midst of of war, when people are consuming <laughs> uh, great point, content yeah. and and really can't and when, get when CNN CNN's ratings have traditionally been the best, right? Yeah, and and that's when you really are consuming a lot of news is in the midst of some geopolitical dynamic that you're trying to get on on top of. So, um, if you're not successful in that period, then it's going to be very hard to be successful in another period. And it's just a very crowded media space. So, uh, CNN trying to push out the premium subscription service, uh, you know, news, what cable really did successfully with all of their news subscription services. And you think about the, the financial networks that were able to broadcast financial news 24 seven, and uh, you know we we may be seeing a limit here of what what uh, subscription can do. Uh, in our final news from the week, we saw Amazon make a couple of announcements. They announced a one billion dollar industrial innovation fund. Its focus is on backing logistics and supply chain technologies, really focused on customer fulfillment and other things like that. And Interestingly, in the same week, they also unveiled what they're calling Buy with Prime, which lets select third-party merchants use Amazon's shipping and logistics network to fulfill orders placed through their own sites. So Amazon bridging beyond the Amazon uh, environment and allowing their expertise in fulfillment to be used by by third parties through their own sales channel. Very similar to what AWS has ultimately become, where it was built for their own needs, and then over time was leased out to others. Amazon now feels like they have enough logistics there. Obviously, this makes me think of the break in the relationship that happened a couple of years ago now between FedEx and Amazon, where FedEx ultimately dropped Amazon as a as a customer, likely in advance of Amazon itself dropping FedEx. But Amazon was acquiring last minute and and last mile delivery, what they were calling also the you know middle mile between distribution and the final endpoint. They had bought jets, and so they were building out that infrastructure. 
and now they're investing further in those technologies as well as uh, opening it up, which will allow them to scale. Uh, I think a very interesting move from Amazon as they become much more than just a retailer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, supply chain has uh, really been, I mean, the Netflix news that we talked about earlier has been one of the the few uh, quarterly earnings disappointments that we've heard of that was not pinned, uh, at least in part, on supply chain uh, difficulties. So, uh, you know, clearly uh, Amazon deals with uh, thousands of, of different uh, suppliers and uh, uh, any innovation that it can scale uh, across uh, those suppliers stands to benefit it greatly. Uh, I also think, Sean, the point you make about uh, AWS is a really strong one. There are other examples, uh, none anywhere near the scale of AWS, but uh, Sidewalk, uh, the uh, IoT network that it lit up uh, on, on the Echo and Ring devices. Some of the first customers uh, for that are not Amazon, uh, but include, for example, Tile, uh, the, um, you know, the, the competitive tag service to, uh, to AirTags. Uh, you know, an, an, another example is that um, uh, Alexa, you know, which we, we've talked about on the show before, how they have white labeled uh, Alexa and have offered it to customers like Disney uh, and, uh, and Verizon. Um, so, so I like to call this uh, this trend Amazon deconstructed. You know, where it's taking uh, key parts of its value proposition or key technologies that it's developed and allowing third parties to tap into it. I think the other angle to this is that, to the extent that they have more merchants taking advantage of uh, Prime, buy with Prime. They, of course, raise the value of Prime to the customer, and it acts as a stronger hedge against Walmart Plus uh, as, uh, as Walmart tries to, to build up that uh, rival subscription service. So uh, th- this seems like a, a win-win-win all around. I'm, um, the only question I really have is around the timing. You know, why now after shipping has been around for so many, you know, the prime shipping, the original benefit has been around for so many years. Uh, But perhaps uh, one explanation is that during the pandemic, you know, maybe they wanted to do this earlier, but the pandemic really uh, derailed a lot of the prime delivery services. And now that things are uh, getting getting back to normal a bit there, they, they feel that they can do this now. I, I think you're exactly right, Ross. I think what's happened there is demand spiked during the pandemic, and they really had to allocate all of their available logistics services to their own platform. Now demand for goods is slowing as demand for services improves. And so that gives them a little bit of, of slack in their system that they can look to source to others. So uh, I imagine this will be selectively rolled out Yes, and, they're they're starting with uh, people on the fulfilled companies on the fulfilled by Amazon program, yeah. and I think your uh, your insights around Walmart Plus are exactly right that they are uh, trying to cut that off. So we will uh, see how that plays out. But Amazon clearly moving further into logistics and moving beyond just the Amazon umbrella. 
We'll end this week's episode of Tech Expansive there. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac. You can find me on Twitter, the public square at uh, Sean Dubervac. <laughs> and uh, until Elon decides otherwise, you can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>